0: Hello, this is Who Cares with uh, Melinda Marks, and today is a good day because we have a special guest. Hello, I am Erin Denine. Hello, Erin. Today, Erin and I are going to talk about our top five fascinating, bizarre, recorded uh, deaths. Death happens every day, so do bizarre deaths, I'm sure, but these are the ones that have at least some sort of historical record, even if that's anecdotal. Um, and we have our top five, so we're going to go through the list, and then we're going to reflect on what that list or what those revelations might say about us or about life or about sort of the psychology of coping with death or whatever the heck else uh, generates from this conversation. So, Erin, <laughs> what is your number five? Um, my number five is kind of a two-parter. Okay. It's specifically
1: George Plantagenet. Okay. But it's. I also want to talk about, like, traitors' deaths in general, especially, like, in England, Uh, mainly because I have a
0: personal connection. We love a related tangent.
1: I think it's important to talk about, like, what traitors' deaths were Mm -hmm. and why George Plantagenet stands out in relation to traitors' deaths. And I want to say that most of the deaths that I chose today – could be conjectured hearsay like it, it could it hyperbolized you know but that's what makes it fun yeah and it's been noted and that's why like people are obsessed with learning about these deaths so this was after the like 1350s around 1351 I want to say mm-hmm. is like they they had a treason act um in England that they put forth I want to say it's one of the Henry's, but don't quote me on that. And the traditional death for a traitor of high treason would be the hanged, drawn and quartered, mm-hmm. which I think I, I want to go over this because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I know, like they know that's the death, but they don't know what it is really means. So the trader would be fastened to a like old-fashioned hurdle, just a wooden panel, and they would be drawn by horse. Um, So they're being drawn in the streets like on the dirt. It's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. In front of everyone, and then they get to the place of execution. They're hanged almost to the point of death, so it's not it's not to break the neck; it's really just to choke you. Mm-hmm. This is typically for men, so then they'll be emasculated, which means their their testes and penis are going to be chopped off. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to be disemboweled and beheaded, and then chopped into four more pieces. So that's the quartered part. So basically, you're being chopped up. First, you're you're being dragged through the streets. Then you're being almost choked to death then you're being, all your body parts are being chopped up. And then your remains are going to be displayed somewhere prominent, mm-hmm. typically like the London Bridge. And even like beheadings, which is, I think, like a step down when you're talking about like traitors and treason, like just being beheaded. Those typically were also displayed like on London Bridge.
0: There's this link between, there's this somehow fi- and fiction, though it may be, there is a link between the idea of how much you want to sensationalize something or how much you want to publicize something and the very yeah. graphic manner with which the execution is carried out.
1: Yeah, and I think that sensationalization is like plays a major part in the notable deaths through history. Um mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting for high treason, so hang drawn and quartered specifically is typically for men and women are burned at the stake. And I, I liked where I was reading, it was like for public decency. And I was like, How is burning at the stake public decency? Because honestly, I wouldn't want either of these deaths. But I mean, I think beheading, just a quick, solid beheading would probably be the best. But um, why I wanted to talk about this is because I actually have a distant ancestor, uh, John Southworth. He became a Catholic martyr because in the 1600s, we have a shift um, in England specifically to the Church of England. And if you're Catholic in England, it's not a great time for you. Um, and John had gone back and forth to the main continent to escape some persecution. But eventually he came back to England for you know whatever mission he wanted to achieve with that. And so he was actually hanged uh, drawn and quartered. But the cool thing about John was Cromwell actually ordered surgeons to sew the corpse back together for him to be sent to burial. So, I mean, I would say, like, typically they're displayed. And so the fact that, like, Cromwell was like, sew his corpse back together mm. so that it can be sent to this, I, th- I think it was like a college for burial. Interesting. But I wanted to talk about George Plantagenet in this traitors' Deaths, because... Uh pretty much I've always seen in dramatizations and story like, you know, all the other stories where he is actually drowned in momsey wine. Mm-hmm. And like, I, there's lots of different stories that take different liberties as to how he becomes drowned by Malmsey Wine. Like, did he choose it as a big, like, F you to his brother, Edward IV? You know, was Richard III behind it? Or was Richard III, you know, trying to save George? So this is like, tw- this is towards the end of the war, of the roses-ish. But I don't think there's any other accounts of how he was put to death. And he was put to death for treason. I mean, so we could we could argue how I think Edward went to court and was like, he's treasonous and didn't even let George be in court. So I don't know it. It's fishy, um, but like, there's no other accounts of like how he was put to death.
0: Yeah, they describe. They just describe. Most accounts just describe the execution as private.
1: It's it's interesting. Like the privately the privately uh, executed could lead to so many different types of rumors. Mm-hmm. But I like that it just ends with he was drowned in some wine.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I love that the type of wine is specific. Yes, momsy comes from for anybody that momsy is refer refers to the type of grape as as usual with Mm -hmm. wine, but you know momsy is so anglicized it kind of sounds like a like an infant illness a little bit
1: like it kind of to me it kind of sounds like a like a children's cartoon character like yeah a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's it's very home. It's like very quaint, but it's the type. Great. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah, the idea that especially, and I don't know when that rumor was propagated either. Obviously, Mm. obviously, you know, between uh, about fourteen eighty or so was when he was executed, I think, mm-hmm. in the 1470s. I, I, I wrote
1: 1478 in my notes.
0: Oh, well, then good. So you have you have more careful notes than I, which is the way that this is supposed <laughs> to work because it's your death. But uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, obviously in the, you know, 100, 115 or so years, well, 100 or so years between when it happened and when Shakespeare started writing and researching, it had obviously been propagated for some time. But yeah, it's so interesting. It uh, what I really like about this choice uh and your your offering of it is yeah, it's like it's such a sp- it's so specific and it's so v- it's about something that is so vague and it the rumor continues to this day and we don't know why.
1: and people love it. People love it. And and I I I still question to me, I question why he would have a private execution versus a public one yeah
0: i mean the war of the roses is such an interesting con i mean it's obviously it happened It, it lasted so long i mean it was a generational feud and what is interesting about it is that it's been such an object of fascination and it's been so often dramatized but it's still so there are aspects of it that have been so public and and so sort of open in terms of circumstance but then like there are aspects of it that are so private and shrouded in secrecy and conspiratorial mm-hmm. and people have just filled in the blanks for so long. Cause it makes for like a good drama. And that's very interesting mm-hmm. as well. People love royalty. Right, so
1: that's my, my number five. That's Drinks. good. Thank you for, Oh uh, yeah. I have another Royal coming up.
0: <laughs> All right. My number five is uh, St. Lawrence, um, St. Lawrence, the martyr. And uh the reason why I, I like St. Lawrence. Um, this we're talking here about the, the third century. So we're talking about mm-hmm. still the contentious period. I mean, what period isn't contentious when we're talking about religious domination, but we're talking about a particularly uniquely contentious period of uh Christianity and the yes. the um becoming of Christianity into yeah. Catholicism um as the roman empire
1: right at the right before it becomes the major power yes right before it becomes the the
0: major powers the roman empire sort of discontinues its death grip upon uh, most of the european continent and into africa of contentious legacies all over but um uh, saint lawrence um were saint lawrence was one of the group of of Christians who were murdered under the order of uh, Valerian the emperor. And the reason why I chose this is just because, I mean, he obviously became murdered, but his, his whole thing was that uh, he was ordered to be roasted alive. So again, all of this, all of this is anecdotal. I certainly was not there or if I was in any, (laughs) in any way, sort of a comic (laughs) way, I'm not aware of it. Um, so of course we can't prove this, but essentially he was ordered anecdotally to be roasted alive, to be tortured. So he was essentially tied to a, a giant spit. Um, he wasn't impaled on the spit, he was conscious and alive, but he was tied to a giant spit or a grill, some sources also say, like put onto a hot grill, and a fire was lit underneath him. And he is purported to have to have said According to according to a Roman poet who happened to be there, that he basically told the crowd before he died, "Turn me over, this side's cooked," and <laughs> now he's the patron of cooks, chefs, and comedians, which is why I chose it.
1: I I love it, and honestly, um, there could there could be a lot of comedians who really love Saint Lawrence because they too want to be roasted alive. But just a different kind of roasting. Yeah,
0: who doesn't who does, <laughs> want to be? Who doesn't want to be or get the opportunity to talk about roasting as a comedian? But I, I, it, this also brings to mind the fact that when saints are canonized and they're assigned to some sort of beneficence, mm-hmm. um, <laughs>
1: that, I, I do wonder if that's where the term like a roast comes from.
0: I don't know. I mean, we could look it up. That's an, that,
1: that, I mean, I feel like that's really smart. <laughs> like, <laughs> high tier level humor, but uh, it I probably just because Oh, that's a sick burn. But like, again, it could all relate back to St. Lawrence. And we just don't know that we're making St. Lawrence jokes. Because that would I that would make me so happy if that's actually where that came from, which I'm just making up in my mind right now. But if I thought of it, I'm sure someone else has thought of it. That's awesome. Do you have anything else to say about St.
0: Lawrence? No, I mean, there's not a lot. There's not a lot on obviously, on the life of St. Lawrence. But really, like I said, we can trace that attribution of his death to one person, um, which is also very interesting. It is somebody who claims to have been there at the time as an eyewitness. And it was also somebody who was a poet. So it's very likely that that person took a great deal of creative license. Uh, Possibly even as a mockery of St. Lawrence. I don't know because um, I think it's unlikely because this person was also a Christian, but it could have also been a way to, again, as you said previously with your choice, to either politicize or to uh, create some sort of emotional uh, reaction to this death. And I don't know. What I don't know is if Prudentius, the poet, knew St. Lawrence personally. But yeah, the idea that this is so spe- that the idea of canonization and this idea of protection, of sainthood and protection, which is like so valued and has so much symbolic meaning attributed to it, is so specific to not only the manner with which St. Lawrence died, but also this one anecdote.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of this question. If you were to
0: witness someone's
1: death, would you feel okay with making up their last
0: words? That's an excellent question. I I feel like if I knew that it was for somebody else, not to politicize, but if it was like, I, and this is very specific. So I mean-
1: what I if it's like, you're like, I want to make a good story. I want to make this like, it's someone you know well and you're like, I know that they would totally enjoy if I made their last words some hilarious anecdote.
0: See, I think I would only do it for family like not my family but their family like if and this is very like this the the long answer or the short answer is I don't know I I don't think so but I can imagine doing it if like (laughs) this is so dramatic I think the most dramatic is is like if like if somebody that I knew that this person had been like feuding with and they had just made up and they were like rushing to their deathbed and they wanted closure so badly and they were like you know did they say anything I'm eh. or like you know did did they know that I was you know coming or whatever
1: yeah that I might give someone closure yeah Yeah, that
0: makes I might do it to give somebody closure but I don't think that I would sensation I don't think that I would even slightly sensationalize for storytelling purposes would you
1: I honestly have no clue. Um I'm an agent of chaos, mm. so it really depends. I think it depends on the situation. Now, if it was like my younger brother, I know 100% he would be down for me to make a joke out <laughs> of his death. That sounds terrible, but like, you know, a joke within his his dying breath, um he would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That that's just something like I know because I am so close with my brother that right. he would he would find great joy in that. So, again, it would have to be a very specific person,
0: yeah, um, yeah,
1: and and probably with with that joke, there would be something sweet. It wouldn't be like just that, right
0: you know? That's what makes me think uh, uh, that's and that's a very I appreciate that answer a lot. And I think, I yeah, I think that that might be. I think that's a good point that you've made to sort of advocate for like, if you know somebody would want you to do that. I think yeah. that's another good reason.
1: Like when my best friend loves puns, he would love to, you know, have a pun in death. Like yeah, you know.
0: And if he wasn't able to do it, you might take on that legacy, you know, in honor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or if he tells a really bad
0: pun, I'll change it for him. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. That's why, but that's why stuff like this is interesting to me because it makes me wonder what the relationship, if there was a relationship between, Mm -hmm. you know, anybody. Like the idea of people, the idea of biography um, is so tenuous. The idea of biography as a matter of public record is so tenuous. The idea of last words, like mythologizing somebody's last words, especially in like under a regime or in a political landscape where there's a lot of censorship or there's a lot of bias you hear about these last words and like you cannot help but wonder if they're verifiable and and really honestly and truly not even to make my own pun who cares right because it becomes part of the (laughs) historical legacy
1: yeah it's it's a fun story to tell yeah
0: but that's why I chose that just because of the fact that I that's so unprovable but it has become such a canonical, for real, literally mm-hmm. canonical part of the legacy of St. Lawrence's Yeah. It's so interesting. All right. What's your number four?
1: My number four is Draco of Athens. Mm. And I think this is like, if you were to go to Wikipedia and be like, unusual deaths, I think this is like the first recorded one. Let's, um, I have the list least up on Wikipedia. right
0: now. Let's look at it. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes,
1: it is. Uh, Draco of Athens, not Draco from Harry Potter. He's the guy who was in charge of creating a lot of law, specifically. So we talk about like a draconian constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he's the guy who innovated a lot of law in ye olden times. That would be Greece. Um, <laughs> Athens. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember which century he's
0: in. I think he's in the what is that the 7th century B- bc the middle of the 600s yeah. um before before
1: we uh before christianity takes over yeah. many hundreds of years um so one, you know he's the guy who distinguishes the difference between like murder and involuntary homicide but um he's also kind of a dick because uh he would be like yes um you stole a cabbage the punishment is death Right. Um so he mur- cool. didn't
0: murder anybody, which is
1: great, but we're still gonna die. Yeah. Um, and also like very harsh slavery laws. But uh Draco was also the guy who was like, Hey, we should write down our laws so anyone who is <laughs> literate can read the laws, and so it's not just like three people who have been like orally sharing the laws with each <laughs> other. Um I eventually I think he gets chased out of Athens you know, he's, he's a controversial kind of guy. Um, anyway, so uh, he leaves Athens and goes to Aegina and he gives a performance at a theater. Now it could just be like, he's talking, you know, like a lecture type thing. Yeah. It doesn't really say what it is, but it's some sort of, uh, performance, um, to a big audience at a theater. And they are so pleased, so pleased with His performance that they are showering gifts which is common practice back then Mm -hmm. Um, but they shower so many hats and shirts and cloaks and items personal items on his head that he is suffocated to death I love it and to me that's just that's just so funny like as a person who really needs to stop shopping um (laughs) and stop getting clothes uh that is a like pretty cool death for me to just be like yes uh throw all your <laughs> your clothing items on me and let me die.
0: <laughs> uh okay. Um that's a good one. And I yeah. I am I think I feel like after all the ones you say I'm going to say they're good cuz they will be but also like I do think I mean, a lot oh, about okay, being good.
1: I I previewed a little and I saw some names that I was familiar with and I was like, "Oh, that's a good one."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah. There are the ones that Scare me.
0: Thank you. The ones that scare me are close to the top of my list, but the other ones that yeah. that don't quite scare me or that are just really anecdotal are towards the bottom. And and including my number fours are uh, it's a tie. Mm-hmm. Um, my number fours are uh, Edmund Edmund Ironside and uh, Sigurd the the Mighty. It's a little sk- So these do kind of capitalize on. One of these capitalizes on, I wouldn't say not a specific fear that I have, but I feel like a fear that a lot of people have that has been mm-hmm. sort of proven to be something that you might should be afraid of, which th- is that it involves a toilet. And yes. the other one just is something that i think about a lot (laughs) i just reflect on it (laughs) a lot so the the toilet one is edmund ironside um which is somewhat ironic depending on what side you're talking about being made of iron because he was stabbed (laughs) while sitting on a toilet (laughs) um his assassin uh was hiding apparently underneath the toilet and when he went into the privy to do his business um in the year, uh, in the year 1016, he was yes. very young too. Uh, somebody was down there with a knife, and when he dropped Trout, somebody was down there and stabbed him ostensibly through the butt and killed him. And most historical records would lead you to believe that at least one version of this is true. Uh, the location yeah. in which he was assassinated is true. However, um, more uh, fascinating is that at least one uh, account indicates that there might have been a crossbow.
1: Oh, so very like Game of Thrones borrowed from this this concept. Yes.
0: Now, and of course, there are some people who say that this did not happen at all, and that he was wounded in battle and received similar wounds, multiple wounds mm. that way. Um, but a lot of people say he died on the toilet, and a lot of people imply like the toilet. I like
1: the toilet one because it's equally terrifying and funny. Yeah, it's
0: scary because like being stabbed up the butt. I would I yeah. would imagine is really awful and gross yes um, yes yes and then sigurd the mighty is the guy who who killed an enemy in battle who is now ironically caught posthumously his name the opponent was uh mile but he's now known uh, sometimes as uh to the bucktoothed <laughs> or a uh, Brigta the tusk. <laughs> I think <laughs> posthumously because when Sigurd uh, killed Brigta, he beheaded him and strapped the head to the saddle to ride back to the to the camp. And while he was riding, Brigta's teeth were well, his head was strapped in such a way that his teeth uh, rubbed against Sigurd's leg as he rode the horse, and because of that repeated motion, he received a, a surface wound to his leg from the teeth of his opponent after death, and he died of the infection. I think about it a lot because I think, boy, human mouths are filthy. Human mouths are filthy, and I think the idea of ironic death is. I don't want to revel. I don't want to revel. We are talking all about how people died, but I don't necessarily want to revel pridefully in anybody's death or celebrate sort of in the irony, but I think that this is a very interesting thing.
1: Yeah, it's ironic. I, I'm not saying, like, ha-ha, that's what you get. It's just, like, that's ironic. Like, I don't know.
0: And and that's really all. I mean, I I didn't give any real background on this, but – um. Uh, it's Sigurd the Mighty was also known as uh, Sigurd Eist- Eistensen, and he was the second Earl of Orkney. He lived at the beginning of the Middle Ages, and uh, he was the leader of a Viking conquest in like Celtic territory in like Scotland, mm-hmm. and so um, he was engaging in a lot of war, and this was the inevitable. This was the inevitable end of that of that feud that particular feud anyway those are my number four I just those are things that I think about a lot they're related to things that I think about a lot I think that some of us are afraid of things coming out of the toilet Uh, I think about a ton but it has also happened it's been known to happen
1: yeah like you just have that passing thought one time and you're like okay yeah
0: I mean snakes have come out of the toilet Yes. They're mysterious. They're mysterious portals into another world that we never see.
1: And and to to be fair, this toilet was much more like probably a porta potty, like we would think of a porta potty oh, yeah. these days. Like I mean,
0: there's a whole a whole person. Yeah, you could most definitely fit a whole person under there.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. Uh that's why I don't use porta potties.
0: <laughs> I can't porta potty either.
1: I mean, for various reasons. Yeah, that's that's the number one. I'm like, what if someone was down there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like a common. It's like it's like a more common fear than I think we often talk about. And then you know, the human mouth is uh, a cesspool, and I could imagine as the human mouth is taken over by even more bacteria as a result of decomposition, (laughs) that it would become even grosser. Um, Erin, what are your number? What is your number three?
1: My number three is a well-known. Death, which is Rasputin of Russia. Um, so, for those who don't know, Rasputin was a, a self-proclaimed holy man um, who the last Tsar of Russia, uh, Nicholas II, um, and his wife—they—they they both were like super into Rasputin. Um, he was like a healer to their son Alexei, um, who was like the heir apparent. Um, never got there. Uh, but he had hemophilia thanks to the Sax Colbergs. because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> intermarrying yeah. uh, royalty. We love royalty. This isn't my ro- my other royal one though.
0: Uh, oh promise. yeah. The the genetic <laughs> weakness of inbreed of strategic inbreeding. Yes. I look yeah. up I look up I and research that, that literally hurts. like twice 11. a year. I don't get tired of it.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy that it was like as recent as the century that I was born in. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, two years before the the royal family is murdered by the the revolution that happens in Russia. Basically, there's a group of noble nobles that don't really like uh Rasputin's influence over specifically the Tsarina. Alexandrina. I'm gonna go with Alexandrina. That's probably wrong, but we're gonna go with it. They don't like his influence over the royal family. And so uh they they're like, okay, well, let's kill him. That's our solution. Um, so they lure him to um another prince's palace. There's lots of different princes, etc., and they all have palaces. Russia was pretty grand yeah. um, at that point. So uh to I wanna say Moika Palace. The palace of prince yusupov and i've only read these things like we said before um and what really happened there will never actually be known but this is the story that takes place so prince yusupov is like hey welcome rasputin it's like midnight but thanks for coming over to my palace and rasputin's like no probs (laughs) and he's like here have some tea and cakes uh, and Raspbian's like, oh, no, no. And he's like, no, please have some tea and cakes because the tea and cakes are laced with cyanide. Um, so Raspian's like, sure, I'll have some cake. Uh, but he, he remains unaffected. So Yusupov is like, OK, well, let's let's drink some wine. So they drink like Raspbian drinks like at least three glasses of Madeira. Um, another another type of wine, another M wine. Oh, yeah, interesting. But um, Madeira, and that was also poisoned, um, and also seems to have no effect on Rasputin. And so at this point, Yusupov like goes upstairs and he's like, shit, what do we do to the other conspirators? He's like, what do we do? And they're like, how about we just shoot him with a revolver? And they're like, sure, sure thing. So they shoot him in the chest and they're like okay there's a couple of us so let's let's like take his his coat and stuff back to his house and like have one of our men look like he's coming back to his house late at night so like no one goes looking for him um and we'll keep him in the basement uh so they go to check him in the basement like maybe a couple hours later but Raspion apparently wasn't dead he jumps up he starts fighting his attackers and he runs upstairs tries to get away gets to like the courtyard where one of the conspirators then shoots him again, um, presumably to his death, but some, there was rumors that he was not dead yet, that they had to wrap him up and throw him in the river and he had to drown to die. Now, because this was 1916, they did autopsies. So they did find his body in the river um, like a day later. uh, And, There was no water in the lungs, so he definitely did not die of drowning. He was dead before the river. He he had three gunshot wounds. One was directly to the head, like a close shot to the head. Mm So we can assume that's at least the killing shot. And they didn't find traces of poison. Now, in my mind, I think it would be hilarious if they thought they were poisoning him, but someone didn't actually give them poison. And so he just <laughs> they're ate just, a, like, really ate <laughs> a
0: meal.
1: Yeah. So um, I think it's just really interesting that, again, this is like a sensationalized death. Yeah. And, a, and you know, it's definitely not the Rasputin from the animated Anastasia that okay. I love, um, <laughs> who, who sold his soul to the devil. Anyway, yeah, so I think vastview is just really interesting in my mind growing up. I kind of had this picture of Russians, so like when I learned about this in high school, it was just kind of like this picture that Russians were like these really hard to kill people who were really hardy and like kind of badass. And Raspian was, like, the perfect example of this.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, you were talking about the autopsy, and I've heard a different account of the autopsy, which made me excited. Because I heard that when they did the autopsy, they saw that he'd been shot in the head, but that his lungs were full of water. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. So maybe there was two different autopsies, two different reports.
0: I mean, maybe, or maybe it was just a way to sensationalize like how hard the man was to kill it's to after kill all like, that he, he drowned anyway
1: and it would it would carry on this idea that he was this holy man
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that like you you know you can't kill him easy because he's holy like you know what I mean yeah um that that's so it's so interesting it
0: is um, and...
1: there's also a lot of wounds so there's obviously a great struggle and some of the wounds they Apparently, in the thing that I read about the autopsy report, some of the wounds were made after he died. So very interesting people. So um, Rasputin, love him or hate him. That's that's the,
0: <laughs> that's the, that's
1: that's the, the Russian way. The love way, him or hate him.
0: Good. Yeah, I almost did Rasputin. Rasputin is another person I think about a lot. I feel like I'm going to say this with like every death. He also did other stuff that is like, It's an interesting, very, I would describe him as ambitious and predatory. Um, Yeah. And it all of that worked for a long time for him until it didn't. But, um, yeah. Until people hated him. Yeah. Another person (laughs) I think about a lot who, like, lives rent-free inside at least three of my brain cells at any given time. Yeah. Okay, so my number three. (laughs) Um, My number three is kind of a cheat um, because I couldn't think of a specific thing, but there are, uh, but there are a lot of reports. This is, lot. Yeah. This is sort of anecdotal. Again, it's like this idea of, anecd- there are a lot of reports of people who died while laughing, of uh, famous people who died while laughing. And most of them died while laughing after hearing ridiculous news. The idea that a mm-hmm. piece of news is so ridiculous that somebody laughed so hard that they, they died. And oftentimes, right, they were in ill health, or they had a lung, You know, it was like a previously had a previously a previously existing weakness or debilitation yeah. that then the they, their system couldn't take all of this hysterical laughter. So I want to acknowledge that. And, um, I, I've decided not to give specific examples of any of, well, of these particular ones, because there are a lot of them and they're readily available. And I feel like if I talk about all these individual people, it'll be like an extra like 10 people. And I, I'm not about that, but I, I do These lists are readily available and there are a lot of people who died by laughing. Um, and usually they die as a result, either of a weakness in their stomach or a weakness in their lungs as a result. And then. Uh, a lot of people have also died on stage or fell ill and became debilitated on stage, and then later mm-hmm. died in a second location. Okay. Um, but specifically, there are stories. There are stories of people dying and collapsing on stage, and the audience not believing that it's real, um, or people dying or falling ill on live television, and audiences thinking it's a. Audiences thinking it's a bit, but more specifically. Um, Uh, there's one person that I want to talk about who uh, deliberately sort of played it as a bit. So I think this the example that I'm going to say consolidates all of the examples of like somebody falling ill on stage and then eventually dying, not only selling it as a bit, but the audience thinking it's a bit. And that is uh, Moliere.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Moliere was in his uh, production of his own play, The Imaginary Invalid, playing the lead character who is a hypochondriac, and he was older and he was in ill health and he began to die on stage and was aware of this and managed somehow, the story goes, to sink his eventual. permanent unconsciousness I believe that he died later I don't believe that he died immediately on stage but he never regained consciousness but he managed Mm -hmm. somehow to sync his final uh, moments of consciousness with those of his character and pretty much died on stage right when the character also did and everybody thought that that was great and didn't know that it was a thing. And when he was experiencing the final symptoms of his eventual collapse, he played it off for laughs on purpose. And, <laughs> and I'm and just and laughing because it resonates it with me so funny. much. <laughs> yeah, it's and he played it off for laughs on purpose and everybody loved it. And then he never woke up.
1: Yeah. It's it's sad and yet it resonates so well with me cuz I feel like I would do the very exact same thing.
0: It is very I think the idea of will it I don't and again I I wasn't there, believe it or not. <laughs> I wasn't there. So like wow. yeah, this idea of like this kind of perseverance um uh, and and I'm not saying that to I know you just said that like that might be something that you would do and I don't know that it wouldn't be something I would do either. Uh, Mm Um, but I think it's the idea of, I think it's interesting because we're sort of phasing out. There's that, you know, that sort of adage that the show must go on, but I think we're sort of finally phasing out of that in a good way.
1: Yeah. Like maybe, maybe let's protect people. Yeah. (laughs) And they're okay.
0: (laughs) Right. Because I've known many people and I know you have too, who have put themselves Mm -hmm. in danger. Uh, very seriously and I also know people who have like ended up in that myself included actually um, who have done a show and then later gone to the, the hospital yeah. um, and it is it it's an interesting sort of mythological uh, commentary on this very common legacy that the show must go on which mm-hmm. as we now know and we're beginning to acknowledge is sort of detrimental to the lives of go figure detrimental to the life lives and health of performers.
1: <laughs> yeah. I it's, it's funny. Cause um, the last show I was in on our opening night, not a person in our cast, which I'm surprising, surprised no one in our cast got injured really. Well, I did get injured in rehearsals, but uh, cause we were doing a show that had a lot of physical movement, mm-hmm. um, An audience member, basically passed out Mm -hmm. um, during our opening night and we were doing it in the round. And I could like, I had a direct line of view to this woman. I I was getting really upset that the stage manager was not calling a a stop in the play Mm -hmm. uh, because this poor woman was, was very ill. So uh, eventually she stopped. We went backstage. Um, She was able to get help. But uh, it was definitely one of those memorable. I will never forget theater moments. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I've also yeah been a part or of shows or heard of shows as well. Besides what the, the example you just gave of either audience members or or actors. Mm-hmm falling ill or being very ill and i've also been an actor alongside actors who i knew were quite ill Um, yeah and it's a very nerve-wracking thing and i'm glad that that's phasing out i'm glad that the philosophy is is finally after thousands of years of this nonsense (laughs) phasing out and prioritizing people's well-being um yeah yeah
1: i I, I don't think i will stop spraining my ankle during productions it happens like once a year
0: I've never been seriously ill, and the only reason that I went to the hospital after a show is because I fell down the stairs during the show, mm-hmm. and I thought I broke my foot, but I did not. <laughs> I that's only good. As you said, I, sp- I sprained it really bad right before a, a scene where I had to run.
1: <laughs> oh, no. I always fall upstairs in in place. Interesting.
0: We should. I should have a group on here just to tell mm-hmm. stories of stuff that's happened. Oh, that's Monday. good. Yeah. That would be a good pod. That is a good pod. I gotta get I gotta get a good group together. Um you're part of that good group, but a group of two is not necessarily a group that could tell. No, that's that's a couple. Yeah, that's a pair, a couple and a pair. Um what's your number two? <laughs>
1: okay. My number two, ironically, is Edward II. No, Edward the second. Um so here's my other royal story. Mm-hmm. Um and I just wanna say, do you remember? The 21st of September, 1327. Um, (laughs) That was my little intro. It was cringy, wasn't it? Um, I loved it. uh, I love that song, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, Mm. Anyway, so he did die, reportedly, although there's rumors Mm. on the 21st of September, 1327. Uh, How familiar uh, with Edward II are you, Melinda?
0: I mean... I'm I would say moderately familiar. I think my fair knowledge of British royals starts at about fourteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um
1: so he's just he he's not making the cutoff.
0: But not quite
1: he's really interesting. His wife is really like the whole story of Edward the Second into Edward the Third is pretty interesting. Mm. So Edward the Second, we have to preface this. With He had a very close relationship with a guy named Piers Gaveston. And there's lots of rumors. What kind of relationship? Were they friends? Were they sworn brothers? Were they lovers? Lots of questions. Because they were extremely close. So close that at one point the nobles were like really mad that they were so close. And Edward's like, okay, Piers, I got to exile you
0: for a little bit. Yeah. I, I will say, I do know enough about this to say if you are interested, if anybody is interested in a frothy but still tragic uh, account of this <laughs> romance, look no further than uh, Marlowe's Edward II.
1: Yes. So I was, yeah, I was going to say Marlowe covered Edward yeah, II. Yeah, that II. I do know. <laughs> that's, um, my that's, you, that's That's your knowledge. Um, <laughs> so if, if you, <laughs> and, and he definitely, Marlowe definitely jumps into that relationship. Yeah winky wink. But anyway, so Edward actually marries Isabella of Spain. And she's a she's a pretty badass woman. Like if we're talking about the queens of English history, especially like the queens that marry into it and come from Spain or France, we have quite a few of them that get quite powerful. And um, Isabella is one of them. Eventually, down down his reign, there's a lot of stressors. And so eventually, their, their marriage kind of starts to fall apart. She doesn't like um, basically a lot of Edward's associates, like the people he listens to. I'm trying to remember whom it was that she specifically disliked. But um, I think it was a Hugh something. The name Hugh is coming up in my mind, but I Mm. can't remember his last name. But anyway, she she didn't like them because they were they were just awful and probably abusive to women. I think I read that somewhere. Don't quote me. Um, But, you know, um, she didn't like them. She didn't like how he was beginning to reign. Um, And so at one point she has been sent to like France and he sends back for her and she's like, no, I'm not coming back. (laughs) She's there with her lover. Roger Mortimer, um, what a great name! What a terrible person! So she's like, I'm staying here with my son, your heir, and I'm staying here with my lover, Roger, and we're we're mad at you. And Edward's like, No, don't do that. And then Isabella's like, You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna raise a giant army to support my son, because we don't like you, and we don't like um we don't like your advisors. Um, so they they amass an army. Uh, forces enough that they are able to depose him and they kind of like force him to abdicate uh like, like hey sign this and he was advised like okay if you don't sign it that means your son will not inherit the throne and so edward does he abdicates so that his son can inherit the throne so i think that's a good dad move and at that point it's like january 1327 he's off the throne but as any political strife time there are going to be supporters of Edward II. second and so what Roger Mortimer does is he keeps moving him from like castle to castle because he doesn't want Edward freed um, and he wants control so Roger Mortimer whether or not you're thinking Isabella's in control of this or Roger's in control of this there's a lot of it could be both of them honestly I think they're both working together
0: mm-hmm.
1: not great So eventually Roger's like, okay, there's a lot of rumors that they want Edward II back. And right now Isabella is reigning, co-reigning with her son or um, she's like a regent Mm -hmm. right now. And he's like, you know, it'd be really great if we could just like get rid of Edward II so that we don't have to fear him. Um, This is hearsay. But basically, Edward III, Edward II's uh, son, receives word that his dad has died in one of these castles that Roger Mortimer has been moving him around from. But no one says how he dies. There's also rumors that he might have lived after this moment, but that his death was told so that people would stop supporting him. But then there's more rumors and propaganda to his death because like why would he just die just out of the blue and some people were attributing it to depression and um you know you can't depression can lead to your death but uh you know that would be like starvation would be your death or like if you're not feeding yourself that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff um there was no like suicide signs or anything but somehow rumors got out and uh we're we're going back to some some butt stuff here.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, so the rumor got out that a horn was inserted into Edward's anus, and within that horn, they then inserted a hot iron rod through that, mm-hmm. so that his innards would be burnt out by that rod, but leaving his outside body looking untouched. And it could also be linked to the possible homosexuality previously mentioned with his good old friend, Pierce. So um, that started, the rumors really started spreading that specific death with a hot iron and a horn placed up his butt. But basically, regardless of those rumors, Edward III, his son, eventually tries Roger Mortimer for the murder of his father. And he um, he does die for that. So history has written that Roger Mortimer is convicted of the murder of Edward II, however mysterious his death is, whether or not uh, he got iron up his butt. I think that one's kind of like really intense. It is. Kind of scary. (laughs) You don't want that up your butt. No.
0: Things going (laughs) being impaled is terrifying, and in fact, I considered doing impaled ones, but Mm -hmm. like I, I, it's so scary. It's scary. I'm glad that we're getting into more scarier ones. Um,
1: My last one is not scary. My last one is mostly fun.
0: Oh well, that's good because my last one is the scariest one to me, (laughs) and this this one that I have um is the second. Your second
1: one. Okay, let's go. Let's hear your second. Well, I
0: let me just say I appreciate how thorough that. And speculative that yeah, count was that he gave full, Edward II.
1: It's full hearsay, but it's terrifying, and it's so specific. Yeah, it, it was po- it was like propaganda at the time. Yeah, and, and
0: that's terrifying. It is <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the fascinating thing, right? Is that some of these can, as you get up, as you get further into document as you get further into the the present or the future i guess i should say meaning the past but the past of like the 20th century once mm-hmm. you have the ability to record something or document something or you can anticipate something and now that there's so much focus media focus on you know high status figures you don't yeah. have this you don't necessarily have this kind of speculation or the kind of speculation that you do have becomes more conspirat- conspiratorial or, or becomes more um about intent Rather than circumstance,
1: yeah. So it's well. I think yeah. Like intent. Like I think of the more modern mysteries are like to me. There's there's questions or conspiracies about like
0: Michael Jackson and Marilyn Monroe, or even like, Princess Diana. Yeah, absolutely, Princess Diana yeah. or um, JFK. Right, and we have things. It's interesting because we have those autopsy reports and we have those photographs, but still.
1: We need to know intent, right?
0: Yeah, the intent is the question, right. not the not the how, but the why. Yeah, this my number two leaves no well leaves very little speculation about either method of death or circumstance, and there really is no intent, which is one of the things that is so scary. Um, but my number two is uh, Isadora Duncan, who was sort of the 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 mother of modern dance. On September 14th, 1927, she was in France with a bunch of her friends. She was 50 years old. And she got into the passenger seat of uh uh of an car convertible, CGSS, I think that was the make. Yeah, I took a note on it. But they were like with a bunch of friends and apparently it was cold because it was fall. And uh, Isadora Duncan was known for a very drapey neoclassical style of dress. Um, She was somewhat, uh, I mean, that was definitely known within her dancing style, but it was also, you know, she just sort of uh, dressed like that. So she wore a lot of these drapey garments. Um, So uh, she wore a scarf on this particular evening.
1: Oh, I think I know who this is. Yeah.
0: And as the car sped up, her scarf blew out in the wind and got caught in the wheels of the uh, rear axle of one of the passenger wheels of the car. And she got yanked out of the top of the car and her neck snapped in her scarf. <sighs>
1: This terrifies me. I know. Okay. So related to this, um, back in my youth, there was – do you remember the Chicken Noodle Soup for the Soul books? Yes, I do
0: remember that.
1: There was one of those that I had read, and there was a story that I can only assume is based off this story because it was instead, like, a little boy with a scarf, and the scarf gets stuck in the bus wheel, and that – haunted me for so many this this death haunts me
0: that is scary it is it's scary and i like have a weird it's not weird but like my the idea of something happening around my neck yes is really viscerally scary. Like I can't, anytime something is like touching it, um, I get weird. Like I get the feeling that something is going to happen. So yeah, it's a whole thing. And I have this also this weird thing. It's not like an actual fear that I have, but uh, my particular fear with cars and my neck is like, I have these weird, like irrational fears that like a car window is going to close on my neck. Like but I don't, Think it's gonna happen, but you know how every once in a while you just imagine something that the you don't image wanna...
1: comes in your mind yeah. and it gives you that. Fear. Oh my gosh! Yes.
0: and that I imagine that pretty frequently, and like I'm not. It's never affected my <laughs> ability to like ride in a car or open the car window. It's it's like a reverse guillotine. Yes, it's like a a slow, <laughs> tempered glass guillotine, and also, also this is um. This is all the only speculative thing about this the the circumstantial mm-hmm. thing cuz we're in the 20th century at this point or we're in the you know in the 20s but she also has some disputed last words um Ooh. some people either think believe that she said farewell my friends i go to glory somebody else according to uh Glenway Westcott who was uh, a novelist during the teens and 20s who also purportedly was there or no, he wasn't there. This is a secondhand account that the same person who said, she said, farewell, my friends, I go to glory, then later told him that she said, I'm off to love or like, I'm going towards love.
1: I, I
0: really doubt all of. This. Yeah, I can't imagine. Also, if you're not anticipating anything happening, why would you say something? Why would you make a statement like yeah. that? You just be like, oh, I, see you later. It, I feel it's, like
1: it would yank out her whole body if they were going at a higher level. Speed.
0: It apparent. Well, apparently it did. I mean, it yanked her out of the okay, car. Yeah. And according to some accounts, um, according to who who you ask, mo- either most of the trauma came from the fact that she was pulled out of the mm-hmm. car onto the pavement, um, and that a lot of the trauma came from that. But according to other reports, like the scarf almost decapitated her before she that's, even hit the ground.
1: That's what I imagine, so- and that's what makes me want to scream. It gives me the it gives me the willies. It gives me the shivers. I do not like.
0: <laughs> All right, Aaron, what's your number one? Okay,
1: my number one, more hearsay. <laughs> it's the dancing plague of fifteen eighteen. In July of fifteen eighteen, in Strasbourg, which is in the Holy Roman Empire at that point, um, but I think is in modern day France. Mm-hmm. Somehow, fifty to like four hundred people. There's different. There's very various reports here just start dancing for days and they start calling it the dancing mania and there are a lot of different historical documents from like a lot of different sources um, stating that people were dancing but they could not figure out why they're just like dancing dancing in the streets and um, some of the sources say that the plague killed about 15 people a day they're just dancing they can't stop they're not eating they're not sleeping they're just dancing there's other sources or, like, city records that don't mention any deaths, so it's also questionable, um, mm-hmm. but the fact <laughs> that there's a plague where it's just, like, people can't stop dancing is crazy, and I, I want to know mm-hmm. what kind of dancing they were doing in 1518. Are they doing, like, you know, little country dances, or are they just going crazy, like, they're raving, like raving, dancing? Um but there's some theories that go with this. All of them are pretty modern theories because in 1518, they had no clue. They're just like, people are dancing. And that for sure is 100% confirmed. People were dancing in 1518. And like I think it yes. started with a single woman and then it, it grew and grew and grew.
0: Yeah, this collective mania. Yes. And there have been examples of collective mania that take other forms in other regions. So, I mean, it is a psychological, legitimate yeah. psychological so phenomenon of, that has occurred. One of the
1: theories is just like a stress-induced mass hysteria. But for me, I didn't find anything of like, what is the stressor? I'm not seeing anything that's a stressor, like, is there something wrong with the crops? Is there, you know, like, what's going on? Um, another yeah. modern theory is possibly food poisoning caused by, I want to say, the ergo, uh, fungi.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or ergo or ergot, yeah. The mold that grows on yes. wheat um, or um, rye.
1: And it has some psychoactive elements to that fungi. And, and... Um, so they, they could have been all tripping out on shrooms.
0: Yeah, which is funny because that pops up also in speculations about why the why uh, witch yes. conspiracies became so popular in specific regions.
1: I I just love like picturing just um a city in fifteen eighteen, <laughs> just just dancing, dancing like crazy, and they can't stop dancing. It, and to me, it reminds me of a lot of like the folk tales, like Snow White, like in the original folk tale. I think the the stepmother is given the like oh, red yeah. hot coal slippers things, yeah, iron shoe, shoes. Iron shoes, and she's like forced to dance because they're so hot. Um, the fact that like you you would have to dance to your death, and I think there's other like folk tale elements like. There's shoes that you put on and they don't like you can't stop dancing and you can't take them off because now they're magic shoes and you're forced to dance for the rest of your life. I wonder if there's like things that you could connect throughout history of like, oh, yeah, that was weird that one guy just started dancing and we never figured out why. And he just kind of died because, you know, and, and yeah, I, I don't know if the dancing is what kills them, but probably more of like um, you're exhausting yourself. Dehydration. Yeah, it's exhaustion. And, yeah. I've heard it.
0: Yeah, and that's the idea of like, yeah, not being able. That's why they're scary yes. to me. Like not being able to stop, despite the fact that you're in pain.
1: I I think there's something really morbid <laughs> in which like
0: you you take something
1: that would be normally a joyful action, such as dancing, um, and it becomes really morbid when you can't stop. Like, and that's the same with like laughing.
0: Well, and tickle torture is also a thing as well i mean it, it does put stress i there's a point at which these things relieve stress, but then also there's yes. a, there's an inverse to that
1: there's the cutoff yeah so like tickling uh dancing it's all it's all kind of dark in when it when it, when the joyful thing turns sinister i think I think the fungi is a is a good theory probably
0: yeah and and you know psycho I, the psychology of you know, collectivism is a very powerful thing, and also like I think it's hard. And I don't know. I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not a scientist. And I think that bread mold is a good explanation for a lot of, you know, when in doubt, just put your put your blame on the bread mold. But I I, I think there's also something to be said, perhaps, for this idea that is not foreign to everybody, any you know at this point, but I think is certainly less so as 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 our uh ability to think globally mm. has increased like i think there's something kind of unknown at this point about the idea of like uh really sm- like living in a small town or the idea of living within a small community within a small town and not necessarily venturing very far off and and the the kind of connectivity that can come from that uh, is something mm. that i can't really imagine or conceptualize for myself. Because even when I've lived in what I would describe as small towns, we're talking yeah. 15,000 people. But this idea of like living in these villages and growing up your entire life with people and then having this kind of psychological or sociological bond with your community, something that I I just don't get. I want to get it, but I just can't get it. And I think, I'm sure, at least in some small part, that might be a oh. part of it. These kinds of small bad mania this idea of panic yeah or this idea like burgeoning panic and we have stories like that that are from later periods but still related like the golden goose where like you touch the you touch Mm -hmm. the person who's touching the person who's touching the goose and your hand gets stuck or like the chicken little or not chicken little uh is it chicken little yeah it's chicken little the chicken little thing about this you know collective mania of the sky falling of these like anecdotal It's very interesting. All right, tell me your number one. All right, my number number one is uh, Tycho Brahe's death. A Czech astronomer and scientist who's very interested in alchemy, but this is terrifying to me. This is the most terrifying death, and I think about it a lot. Uh, In 1601, Tycho Brahe went to a banquet at which he was a guest, and he had to pee really bad, and he did not relieve himself at any point during the banquet because he thought it would be rude, and he didn't want to excuse himself. And he went home, and when he tried to pee, he couldn't. And from that day forward, anytime he tried to pee, he could barely get any pee out, and what did come out was excruciating. And he never peed again, and uh, he died very shortly after. And some people thought that it's most people thought that he died from the, the, the fact that his, you know, he got kidney failure as a result of urinating when he needed to. Um, but, Then later it was speculated they actually exhumed his body because they were like, well, maybe he had mercury poisoning, which causes, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, organ failure. But then they discovered that while he did have a lot of mercury in his system, because he was also an alchemist, it wasn't enough to have caused organ failure. So they kind of have officially ruled that probably it was because of this incident or at least exacerbated by this particular incident that he didn't go to the bathroom when he should have. And then he like shut down his kidneys. That's so scary. And I think about this like once a month. And when I learned about it, I was like, horrified, because we've all held in a pee at one time or another. But like, anytime I'm holding, anytime I'm holding in pee, I think about this. And I'm horrified. So, like, yeah, this is so scary, and it's like the scariest death I can imagine because not only is it pointless and sad, but also like, well, it's so relatable. I'm, I'm questioning, like,
1: wh- why wouldn't you just excuse yourself to go pee? Like, I understand that would been rude, but like, you gotta go when you gotta go. But also, it just reminds me. I had this high school. He was, uh, he was a teacher, but then he. He was, like, retired and was a substitute teacher, and he would tell the best stories. Um, and one of them was, like, when he was a teacher, he would just not pee all day long, like, literally from the moment he got there to, like, the end of the school day. And he just yeah. – he developed kidney stones. So he just told us about how he developed and passed his kidney stones. He also told us about the time he got hepatitis. It was great. Uh, shout out to Mr. Church, who is no longer alive, but um, he he was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, as, as a teacher now, I do get scared. And so I pretty much always make sure to go to the bathroom whenever possible. Even if I don't think I have yeah. to go, I'm like, no, I'm not risking it.
0: I've, uh, I've also adapted similar strategies, but also like drinking water, um, was not something that I, is not something that I've always done. Yeah, and now really I try to you. do it more. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hard. I think it's, 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 It's hard for me to concentrate on that, on, like, keeping myself well, doing – if it's something that I have to think Mm -hmm. about and deliberate upon, similarly to, like, peeing. Like yeah, because oftentimes if it's not like a top priority, you don't necessarily think about it.
1: It would be terrifying if you had to pee so bad, but you could not pee.
0: Yeah, and then you, and then like, what if you went? Like, what if you then got to a toilet, and then yeah. it was like well, it was too
1: late. I, I just want to thank uh, modern <laughs> so modern medicine because yeah. uh, I I think they have solutions for that now. So
0: that's true. I mean, yeah, I think dialysis would have helped our boy Tycho Brahe, but it's still like the idea of being you know i the idea of i think also inadvertently incapacitating oneself mm-hmm. in that way i think that's also something that's really scary because i know that you know chronic illness and physical illness especially is something that affects a lot of people and over which many people have no control and I think the idea of like initiating like for myself this isn't like a judgment Mm -hmm. call on anybody else but I think one of the things that I'm most afraid of as I get older especially is the idea of my own indifference about my body and my health even if it's not deliberate initiating or aggravating potential chronic illnesses mm-hmm. is like something that i think about and i don't necessarily know what to do with except like drink more water i think or like you know stay mobile um but it's it's often it's also like something that is sort of so mysterious like before you start feeling ill like what can you do to maintain the health that you you have such as it is like there's very little it's like shocking sometimes like how little i can like anticipate something going wrong which is something that i like to do it's very comforting but with your body it's like if you feel well and everything seems to be going fine there's not a whole lot you yeah. can do yeah. <laughs> besides maintenance but like i think it really taps into this fear of the unknown and a fear of like um the the beginning of mm-hmm. something new that is very primal like i'm very afraid of of getting older. And there's no rational reason for that. It's an inevitability and one for which I theoretically could have been prepared my entire life up until this <laughs> point, but you really, you can't, you just don't know. And I think that's, what's the most fascinating thing about death is that I, I've, i and this is like going into a, like a final yeah. question um, that I had, but I, I think I've always been I've always been really fascinated by death ever since I was like two or three. I've always been really clear on the concept of death. Nobody ever had to explain Mm -hmm. it to me. I understood it innately, which I think has caused a lot of stress over the years, but also a lot of fascination um, that I don't regret because I think that's probably the one thing that has equipped me to prepare myself for any aspect of mortality Mm -hmm. insofar as I can even understand it, which I really can't, is just the idea that like, I understand the physical characteristics of it. And I have always my entire life been like, oh, well, what if you di-? like, when would you die if you did this? What if you did this? What are the circumstances under which you would cause death or, oh, what, what kind of circumstance would result in death? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, how old is this person when they die? Like I had a lot of death questions that I still have. And I think I can, I I choose to take some sort of peace in that constancy, but also like, as I get older, I think the nature of my fascination has definitely, if not changed, at least sort of become more pointed. So I wanted to ask you, if you consider yourself to be somebody who is, I would say, fascinated with death, or fascinated with, with mortality. And if so, you know, when Did that start for you? And if not, if it's if it's something else other than the idea of death and mortality, like, why do you think these deaths fascinate Mm -hmm. you, even if the general subject of death doesn't always?
1: Well, I think one thing is I grew up in a a very Christian household. So the idea of death is talked about a lot in regards to Mm. your life, your immortal life, like, you know, the whole that whole question um so that that has always been part of the vocabulary part of like the discussion like you know if you die do you want to go to heaven kind of thing like that's a discussion i had as a child like a lot And i don't uh-huh. i think that's fairly normal but like you know or even like jesus died and then comes back like the whole question of what is death what is it really other than like literally your physical body stopping stop working um Mm -hmm. and i think i got interested in like bizarre or unusual deaths or just deaths in general probably around the age of 10 i want to say 9 or 10 when i started reading more adult fiction i think probably around 10 is like when i started reading like lord of the rings and stuff like that um and shakespeare Is I think I was around ten when I started like actually reading Shakespeare and not like wishbone Shakespeare. Um, (laughs) And so, like, I think I was ten when I read Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and (laughs) two two plays that are surrounded with death. And I was obsessed. Um, I I liked the drama of death, but in reality, like when it came with to me reacting with death in like my real life facing the reality of that i i'm a person like i lose it when someone when someone passes away i lose a sense of self i have a very big reaction to that so it's it's really interesting because on one hand i am morbidly obsessed with it like i love true crime i love a good death in a story like i like writing when my characters die like that's that's fun to write that. I was obsessed with the bubonic plague, the black death, uh when I yeah. was learning about it for the first time in 7th grade, like obsessed with it. So, I I think in a way it's like this thing that it's it's a taboo thing that I was allowed to think about in in my household growing up, if that makes
0: sense. It does, and it's that's really um I think that's a uh I don't know. I was going to compliment. I think that's a really articulate and um, really interesting to me um, having grown up under different circumstances. I think that's a really articulate and interesting sort of inverse. Yeah. And I appreciate yeah. that. And
1: like also wondering how will I die? Like when will I die? And I think that definitely yeah. in my 20s, I started getting more and more like, oh, yeah, it's going to happen soon. <laughs> like That sounds so morbid. But like there there is a point where it's like oh it could maybe happen to a point where like oh it definitely could ha- it could happen
0: tomorrow like
1: the immediacy of death um as i age has gotten more and more immediate if that makes sense
0: yes definitely i've felt that as well yeah it's it it is interesting i think that i think i still have a lot of i've still struggled a lot with being able to process death emotionally yes. Um, being able to process anything emotionally has been difficult. And I'm only now uh, in the past couple of years sort of discovering that that's not because I don't have emotions, which is something that used to scare Mm me. I'm just, I'm uncomfortable, I think, processing complex emotions.
1: Well, they're very alien.
0: Yes. And I think that I just assumed for a long time that that wasn't everybody else's experience mm-hmm. but i think that now what i'm realizing is that you know through circumstances that i hope are not purely tragic and i don't think so but i know that in some cases yes i think people just um, some people are either more comfortable or more experienced in navigating and being vulnerable with this kind of complex processing in front of other people and and people take a lot of and some people are able to take comfort or at least acknowledge in a group, this kind of suffering. And I think that I'm still working on that Mm -hmm. as a person, the idea of being vulnerable. And I think that a sort of midway for me, going from like the beginning of my life when death was like this sort of just fascinating statistical data thing, where I just wanted to know about it to being able to process not only my own mortality, but other people's Mm -hmm. as well. Is like this idea of like understanding that it's okay to talk about it with people and whether that means sort of the the midway of like having this kind of podcast episode yeah. with you and being able to sort of talk about not only the statistical facts of these deaths and why they're amusing or why they're, you know, ridiculous, but also sort of processing feelings surrounding yeah. the circumstances of these deaths. That that's kind of a midway, that that there is a collective obsession with mortality and death circumstances that may serve as this doorway into the the sort of more, not more adult, but I guess the more mature and inevitable skill of the the craft of processing personal tragedy in a similar way.
1: That's so cool. (laughs) I was like, ah. That's so cool. Thanks.
0: It is cool. And I'm, and I appreciate you being here. Not only cause I, I think, you know, I know that you're a very interesting uh, and complex person. And I think that I, I dare say that I think that, that I've, it's been a gift to yeah. speak with you and I appreciate, I appreciate you being here. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Good. Uh, but um, in the interest of time, we have been having this awesome discussion for like two hours. So I will I will wrap this up. But is there anything that you either want to plug or want to say?
1: Um, I'll just say that I'm working on my own podcast called uh, What's the Story, Craig? And Melinda will appear on it eventually when, <laughs> when I really yeah. get the ball rolling. And you can also find me on Instagram at Dorky Shorts. All one word, Dorky
0: Shorts. Thank you, Aaron Denine, for being here. Yes. And you can catch Aaron's podcast and many other excellent fire podcasts, including this one on the Witches Brew Podcasting Network. Uh, check us out on Facebook yes. and Instagram. Check out Aaron Denine on Instagram. Dorky shorts, all one word. Please join us again um, on Who Cares as we uh, continue to, like, deep dish on a bunch of interesting stuff. All right. Uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye.